She said that she went there, she traveled there to set up an Islamic state. She believed very strongly that if she didn't go, that she would burn for eternity in hell. Normally in court cases in Dublin, you don't have people talking about their experiences in Syria and in refugee camps in Syria. Oh, you don't typically get a witness who came in and talked about radicalization in the UK and traveling to the Middle East to participate in a caliphate. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. An ISIS bride lured to the caliphate in fear of the fires of hell. A glamorous former radical who escaped Syria and unshackled herself from her extremist past. And counter-terrorism FBI agents called in after the fall of Raqqa. It sounds like the plot from a series of homelands, but it's playing out in Ireland's special criminal court, where Dundalk woman Lisa Smith has pleaded not guilty to funding and membership of a terrorist organisation. Today, I'm talking to court reporter Owen Reynolds, who's been covering this fascinating trial for the last three weeks, as the story of Lisa Smith's journey from an Irish army cadet to the beating heart of ISIS has unfolded. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. What an incredible trial to cover in this country. I just have dipped in once or twice to it and it is just fascinating. Um, In the dock is Lisa Smith, 39-year-old Dundalk woman dressed in full hijab. Is that what they call it? I believe that what she has been wearing each day is a hijab. Yeah, Yeah. changing the colour of it. I haven't seen a black one and a grey one. There's been a blue and a kind of a beige one as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Various different colours. Yesterday I think she was all in black. But it's a head covering. It, but it, it really just covers the hair, obviously, the top of the forehead, the sides of her face. And then when she comes into court, obviously, because we're still wearing masks in the courts, um, so she pulls the mask up. So then it, it covers most uh, of the face. Yeah. But I believe when she's coming to court, when she's outside of the courtroom, she's not. She do, or when she's outside, yeah. she doesn't have that covering over okay. the face. That is just a, that is just a face covering for for COVID reasons. Um, and part of the kind of like the, when journalists are sitting in court. I suppose part of the reportage is the reaction of those sitting in the dock and how they look and their facial expressions. All of that has been taken from us anyway. For the last couple of years, you're just seeing eyes staring out. So That's true. Yeah, yeah. The COVID masks have kind of prevented that. Um, I mean, you can still see certain things. There have been a couple of emotional moments for Lisa Smith during the trial where she did actually, when they were talking about, they were going through her interviews with the Gardaí and they were talking about uh, things that happened with her child while she was in Syria and with her her ex-husband, the person she was married to while she was there. And she did start crying at at one point. And so a very strong emotion like that, obviously, is clearly Mm. evident. But yeah, other other than that, you can't really see much. And she had her back turned to us there the other day in the court. Is that her regular... Does she, does she um, often do that? She's facing the judges directly, but she has her back turned to the main part of the courtroom. I have just noticed that actually in the last few days for the first week or two of the trial, I don't think she did that, yeah. except for that moment when she was crying that time yeah. uh, for those few minutes while she was she became quite emotional. So, um, yeah, that seems to have just occurred in the last couple of days. And maybe that's just simply those bloody seats are hard and uncomfortable. And, you know, you can mooch around in them yourself, trying to get comfortable if you're in them for a long time. Yeah, and part of it could have been uh, that that absolutely could be it. They are quite hard seats. And I actually, I have noticed that she brings a cushion in with her now, which right. is a smart thing to do. Yeah, because definitely. You're sitting there for maybe five hours a day. It can be pretty hard on you. Yeah. Um, but um, I suppose also what what they were showing yesterday in the court was actually uh, recordings of her own interviews that she gave to Gardaí yeah. back in 2019. And she has said on a number of occasions in those interviews that she hates listening to her own voice. Okay. She hates her own Dundalk accent. So right, right. Maybe, maybe that was part of it too. She was just embarrassed she, by her own accent. She's maybe. just like the rest of us. Listening yeah. back to your own voice is never comfortable. So... Let's start with who she is and what she's doing in the Special Criminal Court. 
Right. Yeah. Um, I suppose the easiest place to start with is the actual charges that she's facing. There are mm. two of them and we can talk about her response to those charges because she's given a very full response to them in during a series of guard interviews that she gave in 2019, over four days after she was arrested when she returned to Ireland. So the first charge is that um, she travelled to Syria in 2015 and from that point when she arrived in Syria until she left in 2019 that she was a member of a terrorist organisation and that organisation is ISIS um, which many people will be familiar with. It was a a group, a terrorist organisation that controlled quite a large part of Iraq and Syria from a point in 2015 for a couple of years until they were defeated by the combined forces um, of Russia, Syria, etc. There's a second allegation against her Mm. that she funded terrorism by uh, in May 2015. So this was before she traveled to Syria, that she sent 800 euros via a Western Union money transfer to a man named John Georgilis, also known as Abu Hassan. And he's someone we'll probably talk about quite a lot later. Mm. Now, she has, like I said, she responded to both of those charges in her guard interviews. Uh, She's pleaded not guilty to Mm. both charges. And when... When these uh, allegations were put to her by the Gardaí numerous times, many, many times over four days, um, every time she responded that she did not travel there to join any organisation. She didn't travel there to join ISIS. She seems uh, at parts of the interviews to not have even known what ISIS was when she was speaking to Gardaí. Um, She said that she went there, she travelled there to set up an Islamic state. She said that this Islamic State or Caliphate had been announced by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and she felt that it was a religious obligation on her that she must travel there. And she said that um, she believed this so strongly, she believed very strongly that if she didn't go, that she would burn for eternity in hell, that she had to do this to obey God's uh, will and to obey the call given out by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to travel. She said that this sense, this uh, belief was so all-consuming. She said that she couldn't even look at fire for quite a long time before she travelled there. Uh, She found it terrifying. She said that she remembered at one point seeing her mother tending to the fire uh, at their home in Dundalk. She said she almost collapsed and she she started crying hysterically. So she says that this was a very, very firm, very strong belief that was reinforced by various people that she knew and that she had been speaking with online, including John Georgeless. Um, it was something that was reinforced by her religion. Now, in relation to the 800 euro transfer, she accepts that she did send 800 euro. But she says, as far as she was concerned, it was only for the personal use of John Georgeless. She says that he asked her for charity and she sent it to him. He said he needed money. She gave him money and it was as straightforward as that. And she says that what that money was actually spent on was a laptop for Georgeless's then wife, and some food for their family. And that was it. Now, that charge, that uh, funding terrorism, I haven't heard that being used before. We often see, well, usually in the courts here in Ireland, obviously, it will be the paramilitary organisations, you know, the real IRA, the new IRA, um, that are before the special criminal court, the INLA, etc. And they are usually there for membership charges. We've seen an awful lot of that. But the funding of a terrorist grouping, have you seen that before? Is that used... I haven't seen it before. Um, I don't always cover the special criminal court, so I'm not going to say it hasn't happened before. Mm. Um, it possibly has. It's just it is it is under a different act because mostly IRA um, people who are accused of IRA membership are are prosecuted on the old 1939 Offences Against the State Act. This is a ter- specific terrorism right. offences act uh, that was enacted, I think, in 2009. So she's charged under a different act, and this act, I think, was created to allow for the prosecution of people who may have committed terrorist offences or joined terrorist organisations outside of Ireland. The 1939 Offence Against the State Act really only relates to offences within the state. Obviously, with those, the charge, the ISIS must have been listed as an unlawful terrorist group, be it Europe-wise or in Ireland at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does a girl from Dundalk get to feel that absolute sense of having to go to Syria or else burn in the fires of hell? Well, um, I suppose we have to go back to um, the the creation story, as it were, how, how Lisa Smith, first of all, 
decided as Islam was for her, and then what she says happened after that. And we've heard this from a couple of different perspectives, as a couple of different witnesses have given their perspectives on how Lisa ended up where she has ended up. So we'll start with, um, we go back to 2011. And... uh, According to one of her good friends, a lady named Una McCartney, I think was the very first witness called in the trial, Una McCartney said that Lisa Smith had been for many years searching, looking for something. She was uh, kind of isolated. She was quite vulnerable and she was also quite naive in a lot of ways. She said she was quite easily led and would um, easily be led by someone, say, who was promising her something. But she had this vulnerability about her and Una McCartney said that may have extended back to her childhood, her upbringing. She said that she, her father was uh, an alcoholic and that he may have been violent towards Mm. violent during her upbringing so you know all of these things had combined she had been searching there was a searching for something spiritually you mean to belong to and there was another witness carol karima duffy who's an irish convert to islam um, who lives also in Dundalk and who knew Lisa for, for a good period around this time. And she also spoke about her as searching for something, looking for something. She said that she spoke to Lisa and Lisa told her that she had previously tried Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, some kind of spirituality involving fairies. We didn't really get to hear much about that, but that was something that she had tried for a while. Una McCartney said that a lot of these pursuits and beliefs that she had she would go hell for leather for a while with them and then they would kind of fizzle out. Her interest in them would fizzle out. And she sort of thought that the same thing might happen with her interest in Islam. Now, uh, as I said, there were a few different perspectives on this and we also have Lisa Smith's perspective um, in, in from what she told Gardaí in 2019. And that was that in 2011... She was going on the internet. She was becoming interested in the Middle East and the wars there. She was wondering why these things were happening, why the, why the West was getting involved. Was she still serving, sorry, in the Irish military at that stage in 2011? Yes, in the early part of 2011, she certainly would have been. And in 2010, when she was kind of, when these kind of ideas were coming to her, she had spotted things going on in the Middle East mm. that interested her. And she wondered why the West was getting involved in wars in the Middle East and so on. And she wondered why certain terrorist attacks had been carried out in the West as well. And um, she was going online. She was speaking to Muslims online, she said, through Facebook, etc. And she was asking them questions. She was asking them about things that she had heard, such as, you know, that Muslim men are very controlling over their wives and that they even beat their wives. But she said that she was quite happy with the answers that she got in respect to those questions. And then in 2011, uh, around May 2011, she said she actually read the Quran for the first time. And she said that as soon as she read it, she immediately knew it was the truth. That's what she said. And she said she cried, she laughed, and she was just happy. She really felt that this, this was something for her. So she um, she started looking around for more information. She admits herself that at that point she knew absolutely nothing about Islam other than the little bit she had read in the Quran. So she turned up at this mosque in Dundalk, and that's where she met Carol Karima Duffy. Now, Carol Karima Duffy took the stand. She was one of the first witnesses after Rune McCartney. And she said that she had known Lisa Smith around the area for many, many years. Uh, she knew Lisa's family. She, you know, so she was surprised, um, but quite happy that Lisa turned up at the mosque and seemed to be showing an interest in Islam. But she told her, she said to her, you know, it's going to be, it's a difficult thing to do. You're going to have to give up a lot of the things that you take for granted. You're not going to to be allowed to, um, you know, celebrate birthdays, celebrate Christmas with your family, things like that. I'd be gone (laughs) out the door immediately. (laughs) I mean, she, she certainly says that she painted a very austere picture of the religion because she wanted her to be very clear. Mm of the difficulties that she was going to face. But she said uh, Lisa's attitude was that this was not going to be a problem. She wanted to be. Did she talk to her at that stage about, you know, wearing the clothing or how that would go down or if there'd be any reaction to that in a negative point of view? Well, yeah, I mean, Carol Duffy said that, you know, on the streets of Dundalk, she gets shouted at, she gets abuse. You know, Mm. she said that that is something that you're going to have to live with if you start wearing those clothes. But she said that, even in respect of that, Lisa Smith was very eager to don the hijab or yeah. um, um, to wear to wear the the very obvious Muslim clothing. Um, so, according to Carol Duffy, she gave her all the warnings and she really told her, you know, this is not going to be an easy life for you if you do take this on. But um, 
Around the same time, she said that Lisa was looking for a place to live. And it, as it transpired, she ended up living with Carol Duffy. And Carol tried to um, convince her or, uh, you know, urged her to come along to classes at the mosque, to learn about Islam, to read the Quran, to read the Hadiths, to read the Sunnah. The Sunnah are these kind of explanations of how you're supposed to interpret the, the Quran. Okay, so, um, and she said, Lisa started coming to those classes. She didn't come very often. And she said when she did come, there was a little bit of trouble. There was a little bit of... She said that Lisa made the other women in the mosque feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, that they thought she might even be a plant, she said at one point. And the reason for that was because she was very interested in talking about things like suicide bombings, um, you know, 9-11. This is according to Carol Duffy, that these were the things that interested her, that she she said um, she seemed to put place great importance on the idea of having a husband who would die in shahid, which means who would essentially die as a martyr to the religion. And she talked about, according to Carol Duffy, Lisa Smith talked about how important it is to push your husband to die shahid. And presumably these women knew that she had a military background, so that would have made them maybe slightly suspicious that she was a plant as well, that she could have been put in yeah, from I mean, that point of view. At that point, actually, um, when the witness said that, the defence barrister, Michael O'Higgins, um, who's representing Lisa Smith, stood up and he objected because this is essentially hearsay. She's saying what yeah. other people thought and what other people yes, said. Yes. So he objected and the judge, uh, you know, s- said Miss Duffy should really just stick to talking about what she has direct knowledge of rather yeah. than what other people said. So that was as far as we, uh, as far as that evidence went. Yeah, yeah. So um, she has she left the military at this point? Is this bringing us into so, 2012 or what's going on in the background, I suppose, that is interesting her in those sort of more radical areas of Islam? Is she is she communicating at this point with this man we call Abu Hassan? Um. Not immediately. And now this is where, you know, obviously in any trial, you're going to get different points of view. And Lisa Smith's point of view certainly differs from Carol Duffy's point of view Mm. uh, on how this transpired. So um, Carol Duffy said that she she did not urge Lisa Smith to leave the army um, and that she did not have any role in radicalizing Lisa Smith. Lisa Smith says in her Garda interviews Mm. that Carol Duffy radicalized her. Um, and uh, that she bears responsibility for radicalising her. So at this point in 2011, Lisa Smith is still in the army, but she's starting to have concerns. According to herself, she says that that Carol Duffy told her that it was haram to be in the army. In other words, that it was forbidden by Islam. That um, uh, ideas like nationalism are haram or forbidden by Islam um, because there is only meant to be one nation under Islam. So there's no, there can be no nationalism. Mm. Um, she also said that there was a concern that if she were ever posted abroad, that she might end up in an area where there might be other Muslim fighters and it would be forbidden for her to participate in, in those circumstances. Um, and she says that she was also told that things like, you know, the fact that you're paying tax, she said, you know, that tax could go towards funding wars against Muslims. This is These were the thing, kind of things she says she was being told. So she was being essentially told that she couldn't be in the army. She was also concerned that she couldn't wear the hijab while she was on duty. She actually applied for special permission to be allowed to wear the hijab and that was denied. And I think she said that that was kind of the... Um, the 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 point where she really realised the she, straw really that yeah, she, she, she needed felt she out, couldn't yeah. continue to she couldn't do both yeah she couldn't participate in her religion and be a member of the army and she did say that you know when it came down to it uh, her religion dictated that if she does if she doesn't do the right thing she burns an eternity for hell uh, the army might give her a pension and you mm. know a few quid in between uh, so for her she said it was a as a, a no-brainer. I suppose to reiterate, because it's a very serious allegation to level against somebody, Carol Duffy completely denies that she said any of these things to yeah. her. Um, yeah, now Carol Duffy says that it was Lisa Smith who was who was interested in what she called the harsh end of Islam, mm. the harsh side of Islam. She says that she had no part in radicalising her. She said that they often discussed um, difficult topics to do with Islam, including things like the 9-11 um, bombings in, 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 in America, including, you know, figures like Osama bin Laden, but she said that they discussed these things because these things are these are things that people often say to Muslims. Mm. And so they need to be able to speak about them. They need to be able to talk about these things. But she says that she never promoted any of these radical ideas, such as that, you know, the American government knew about 
the 9-11 attacks in advance but decided not to do anything about them because it would further their interests in the Middle East or whatever. She said she never taught her any of those ideas and she actually described that whole idea as ridiculous. Mm. Um, she also described as ridiculous sort of um, this claim that Islam is spread by the sword, things like that. She said that these are all ideas that don't really hold any sway anymore. She said there was at one point, you know, there was a jihad that involved a kind of a religious war, uh, but she said that hasn't existed for a long time and it doesn't exist now. It, mm. it, this is going back to, as she put it, the time of the prophet. It's not not for modern day. So she she denies absolutely that she had any role in radicalizing uh, Lisa. Or encouraging she said, her out of the army. Yeah, and she yeah. said that Lisa probably had her own ideas um, and that she interpreted things in the way that she wanted to. And she also spoke about now um, something that you were touching on there a minute ago is that at this point, Lisa was also speaking to a lot of people online and mm. she was getting a lot of her information online. And Miss Duffy said that Lisa would actually confront her with the things that she'd read online and that contradicted what Carol Duffy was saying to Lisa. Mm -hmm. And she said that sometimes she could even be a little bit offensive. They fell out over these arguments. And when Lisa Smith moved out of Carol Duffy's house, she said she just did, didn't speak to her again after that. The, the friendship was, was more or less finished at that stage. So they were in completely different, you know, trajectories, really. So who is Abu Hassan George Ellis? Is that what you call him? John Georgelis. I, I John hope Georgelis. I'm I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's what they've been saying. You're doing better before. than I am. So, <laughs> well, he's an American convert to Islam, right? So he uh, hails from Texas, a good old boy, I suppose. But um, at some point in his life, he he decided to convert to Islam, and he um, he was described by his his former wife Tanya Joya, who gave evidence over about three days during the trial. She described him as a very charismatic person. Uh, kind of person who could draw people towards him. <clears throat> and he was also something of a, an Islamic scholar. Although he wasn't uh, a native Arab speaker, she said that he learned Arabic and uh, that he could write, po write poetry um, in Arabic, that he could speak it better than many Arabs themselves. And she said that he was hired by the government of Qatar to translate Islamic laws. Wow. <clears throat> that, um, and that he wrote many papers on uh, Islam, on the Quran, Hadith, the Sunnah, that she said were taken very, very seriously by very serious uh, That's pretty scholars. impressive, isn't it? I mean, to come at a language like that, not your native tongue, and to, to be that, you know, yeah, I mean, proficient it does, in it. According to that, that testimony, it certainly yeah. does seem very, uh, yeah, it does seem that he was a very clever very guy. Very intelligent, yeah. 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 And so he... He had set up this Facebook page called We Hear, We Obey, where people could come along, they could pose their questions on Islam, whatever they might be. They could chat to other Muslims, they could have their questions answered. And Georgeless was one of the people who would answer the questions and because he was seen as something of a scholar. So um, Lisa Smith started talking to him through this, face, we, through this Facebook page, We Hear, We Obey, and then through private messages using Facebook Messenger. And she says that uh, she really got... Um, she really got the sense from him that he knew that he, what he was talking about and he gave her a very different perspective from the more uh, restrictive elements of Islam that she'd been taught up to that. So he told her things like, look, you don't have to necessarily wear all black clothing. You don't have to, um, you know, it's okay to speak to other men. From, you know, you don't have to lock yourself away in a room. Um, he, so he, he told, you know, he said it's okay to listen to music. She had been, she says she had been told that music was haram. But he told her, no, no, that's not true. It's not in the Quran. He told her, you know, you should, he, and he told her, you should only read and consider what's written in the Quran and the Hadiths and the Sunnah. Don't, don't look at scholars. Don't look at what scholars have written. Look at the original source material. And, um, Draw your own conclusions. Draw your own conclusions. And she said that he was very good at whenever she had a question, he would draw her to a specific verse mm. within the Quran and he would say, your answer is there and he would explain how, how it answered it. So she found him a very compelling teacher and mentor in, within the religion. Now, was he um, operating completely independently or was he dealing with people in Syria who were, you know, going to form this caliphate, this IS, and also was he somebody, he's a Westerner, he knows how to speak to Western women or men, converts, and perhaps the likes of not being able to listen to music would be more concerning to us the way we've grown up than people who yeah, have grown I mean, up in Islam. Even Lisa Smith's own counsel, Michael Higgins, said, put it to, I think, Tanya Joya a number of times, that basically he was telling her 
all the things that she wanted to hear. Mm. He was giving her a way to be a Muslim, but also still enjoy the things that she wanted to enjoy, such as listening to music or whatever. He know? was making it more palatable, maybe, exactly. was he, for Westerners who yeah. had grown and up differently. He apparently as well, according to Tanya Joy, he even wrote a paper, which was quite you know well regarded and respected, saying that it was okay to smoke cannabis as a Muslim. You know, he said it, I suppose he was, according to her, he was writing basically that there's nowhere in the Quran that says you can't do it. Mm. And he was saying that uh, some of the earliest um, sort of, uh, um, of the Prophet's uh, own people that they would have used it. So he was, right. you know, he was definitely giving people, you know, a number of different ways, that, a, a lot of different people a way into the religion that doesn't necessarily conflict with the things that they had mm. uh, been doing up to that point. Yeah. And was he operating independently? Well, he uh, so at this point he was living in Egypt, um, and it's it's hard to know exactly what he was doing. From from what we've heard in the trial, we don't really know a whole lot about what he was doing at that point in 2013. I'm sure there's other people who would have studied John Georges and could tell you an awful lot about what he yeah. was doing at that stage. But in the trial, we haven't heard a huge amount. He was there with his wife Tanya Joya and their children. They were in Egypt, um, and. Really, according to Tanya Joya, they were just really living their lives, but they weren't really sure where they were going at that stage. They were still kind of looking for the right place. And Egypt, um, uh, Tanya Joya wanted um, some help. She felt like, uh, you know, she was getting a little bit overwhelmed with her children and so on. She knew that her husband was speaking to Lisa Smith online and she knew that uh, her husband had invited Lisa Smith to come and stay with them in Egypt. And she was kind of kind of eager for Lisa to come over and mm-hmm. stay with them because she thought Lisa would help her out with looking after the kids. Very She's sense. an incredible character in herself. She was brought up in a Bangladeshi family, the fourth girl. She says during interviews outside of this court case that um, her parents were disappointed time and again when they kept having girls. They wanted boys and she was the fourth and last girl. And she seems to have in in interviews again outside of the trial. She talks about, you know, changing school in her late teens and kind of going in and being slut shamed for not wearing the uh, the hijab and kind of, I think, coming into extreme, a little bit of extremism in her teenage formative years. And she goes, meets this guy online and she kind of like, ends up enveloped in his world. Yeah, and she she actually did go in quite deep in in her testimony as well into her own uh, radicalization. Um as you say from when she was in, in, in her teens in Barking in the UK where she says she was surrounded only by muslim voices. She mm. never heard uh, you know and quite a um I think she described it as even though her parents she said were moderates it was still quite an austere sort of an upbringing and there was a there was a, a very conservative upbringing um and so she she said that she was never exposed to alternative ideas she was never exposed to any criticism of the ideas that she was being handed down from her parents and from her community and she said that she also um you know when she was in her teens there was then the rise the rise of the sort of English defense league and she felt that she was compelled then to sort of make a choice, which mm. side are you on? And so she found herself, you know, uh, with other extremists mm. in, in her own community. And uh, as you say, she met John Georgeless, Abu Hassan online. She ended up marrying him and that continued her path. And actually in 2006, she uh, she said she there, there was a caliphate announced in 2006. Now, it didn't get attract the worldwide headlines that the subsequent one did in 2015 but, uh, or 2014. But she said that at that time she fully believed in it. And, and like Lisa Smith, she believed that, you know, to not take part in the caliphate would, requ- would result in you burning in hell and all those things. Nice. She, she firmly had that belief at that time. Now, she has spoken spoken extensively in both in court and outside of court about her de-radicalization and about how she, by 2013, by the time she actually met Lisa Smith in 2013, um, she was more or less, at that point, she had decided she didn't want to be a Muslim anymore mm. and she wanted out and she, she did get out and she now lives in Texas. Isn't that an interesting part of the trial that she, and I mean, she gave evidence over a number of days, Tanya Joy, and a very striking looking lady, um, but that she was on her way out of this religion 
uh, while Lisa Smith was on her way in. It was like as if they were ships passing in a night in, in the night in a way. Yeah, they were definitely. And and she. So just to get back to the the, the I suppose the narrative of how Lisa ended up there. So yeah. the, I said they had been in Egypt. Uh, they had to leave Egypt because there was a crackdown on Islamists in Egypt at that time. So um, Tanya Joya and her husband John George uh, with their children left and they went to Turkey and that's where they met in Istanbul. That's where they met Lisa. She flew out to meet them. She flew out to meet them. Yeah. yeah. And they stayed in the same hotel for a while and uh, I think the way Tanya Joy described it money was a little bit tight at that time um, they were staying in hotels but they didn't really have a lot of money for that so they were probably staying in cheap hotels and she said one night they ended up this was herself, Lisa Smith, and her husband and her children. They ended up getting on a bus at about two o'clock in the morning. Mm. And Tanya Joya said she didn't know where they were going, um, didn't know what was happening. But as the sun came up, uh, she realised that she was in Syria. They had crossed the border from Turkey into Syria. Oh, and Lisa Smith was with them that and Lisa time. Lisa Smith was with them. Okay. So now they're actually in Syria and they end up with some militia there that is fighting at that time against the Assad regime. So this is... ISIS didn't even exist yeah. at this time. Okay, so <clears throat> now according to Tanya Joya's evidence, at that point when Le- when they arrived in Syria and they 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 were with this militia, she said that Lisa Smith was very happy to be there. She was excited and she was in the place where she had always planned to go. She said that Lisa Smith um, wanted to stay there and wanted to fight and wanted to die as a martyr fighting against the Assad regime. That's what Tanya Joya said mm-hmm. uh, about Lisa Smith at that point. But Tanya Joy at this point was was tired of it. They were they were living in fairly you know deprived circumstances. They did they were didn't have running water. It was very difficult to get food and groceries, things like that. The um, house or uh, that they were staying in, there were bullet holes in the walls. The windows were all smashed. No electricity. No running water. All that. So she wanted out, and she got out. She was taken away by. Uh, she was she managed to get as far as the border, and then she used human traffickers. Eventually, she found herself in Istanbul, and then I think John George's parents paid for her to get out of there and back to Texas. Back to Texas, and he stayed he in stayed. Syria. He right. stayed in Syria, and um, Lisa Smith stayed in Syria for a time. She actually got married while she was there, and she stayed there for a few months. Um, but then she left uh, with her husband and actually returned to Ireland in, right. in uh, 2014. Without the husband? And yeah, I think the husband did not come he with her He was Tunisian. He was Tunisian man, yeah. So like in the background, ISIS is beginning to form at this stage or it's very much this, this caliphate idea has taken a grip. You've Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, what a terrifying character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he 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 figures in the trial from time to time because obviously it was he, he who sent out the call mm. to Muslims around the world to come and join this caliphate. And Lisa Smith was back in Ireland at this point, and she says she didn't know what to do. At first, she didn't know if this was a legitimate thing, the caliphate. Um, but she did know that, you know, she had learned at that point that there had been a caliphate previously, a, an Islamic state, essentially, mm. a state where Islamic law was the law. Um, and she believed that there would be another caliphate. And she said it could be this year, it could be next year, it could be in a thousand years, but there will be another one. So she wasn't sure if this one was legitimate. So she didn't know what to do. She was thinking at that point of maybe moving to Tunisia because she wanted to live among Muslims. She wanted to live in a place, she said, where there weren't, you know, pubs where people are drinking alcohol. Mm. She didn't want to live among um, prostitution. She didn't want to live among gay people. She said these things would not be permitted in Islam. And that's where she wanted to live, was was away from those things. And she thought that if she moved to a Muslim country, she would be able to raise her children um, without those temptations, as it were. So, you know, like they're seen as the bad things. <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Um, it's the mindset, really. It's an interesting insight into the mindset because, you know, you you had around that time the the Charlie Hebdo murders in Paris. You had the, the burning of a Jordanian pilot. You had the murder of 33 people in a Tunisian resort. Of course, it was two, an Irish couple caught up in that. So, yes, all of those things did happen before Lisa Smith went to Syria. And she was, those things were put to her. Um, by the Guardian a number of times during the, mm. during her interviews. And she said that, you know, at that stage, um, she didn't really know what the truth was with regard to those things. She said that, you know, a lot of people said bad things about Muslims to make them look bad. Um, 
And she said that she was also looking at videos online which showed people having a great time in the Islamic State, you know, people enjoying themselves and talking about how, you know, there are jobs here and, you know, you live under Sharia and it's a good place to live. She said that even John Georges, I think, mentioned to her at one point that he was eating pistachio ice cream and she thought, well, it can't be too bad over there. I heard the pistachio thing and I was wondering, did they have... Did they create a video of people just standing around eating pistachio ice creams? It's random. Yeah, no, she said later on that that wasn't a video. I, I got that impression at first as well. He must she have told her he it was, was just that he one. told her, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. how would you know actually from the video that well, it was pistachio? pistachio. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we're coming up then 2015. She returns at this point to Syria. She ends up in, in Raqqa and... Uh, gets married a second time. Does she get divorced from the first husband or do we know? Yeah, she had been trying to divorce him for uh, quite a long time and she did manage to divorce him. I, I, they haven't gone into detail about no. how that process came about. Or I, what I went wrong there. Like, Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. And, and he had, I think, expressed a view that he wanted to return to his studies. He wanted to go to university, do various things. So um, I suppose that, that... It just didn't work out. Marriage didn't work out. There had been... Um, yeah, it, it, it seems that they didn't have... Um, a very good time as well when they were in in Syria during that few months as well. So anyway, at, at, at this stage now, so she she has heard this call from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and she's spoken to John Georgeless online and he has convinced her, he has told her, this is a legitimate caliphate and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is a legitimate caliph. He said that there are various, you know, um, requirements of a caliph and he said that he fits them. You know, he, 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 he comes from the right family, he comes from the right mm-hmm. tribe, etc., so she said she believed this. So now she, this is where the religious obligation comes in. She has been told by this authority, as she sees it on Islam, who is John George's, that this is a legitimate caliphate and that she, and he is telling her that she has a religious obligation to go. And obviously she will burn in hellfire for mm. eternity if she doesn't go. And um, so she said uh, she, she packed up what she could. She said she, you know, before she left, um, she was saying, I suppose saying, goodbye to her family in a sense in that you know she helped them to renovate their home she, some money that she had set aside that she had saved up uh, she said that she got 25,000 euros from uh, compensation from a car crash that she'd had years earlier so she spent some of that on helping her family do up their home she said she was quite sad leaving but she left she went to Turkey and she made her way from there back did she tell them where she was off to? no, no. She didn't, I, I don't believe so no. no she didn't say that she was where she was going but she said that this was a sad time for her um, and so she made her way back into Syria. Um, the evidence from the prosecution is that she took a, a one-way ticket. They said that during the opening, that this was a one-way ticket that she took to Turkey. So, um, And the state story, of course, isn't quite so romantic. They are suggesting that she was brought there because of her military background and she was recruited to train female ISIS soldiers, essentially, and that's why well, she was wanted out there. I'm not sure that the state is going quite that far. The state is certainly saying that she answered the call from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi um, and that by answering that call, she was joining a terrorist organisation. Now, the allegation or the suggestion in relation to her maybe training female military fighters, that has only come during legal argument and it was stated by an FBI agent who can't be named. Mm. He's a, an FBI agent who was involved in counterterrorism in um in the Middle East, or actually he said around the world. Um, But in 2019, he was in Syria. And he said that um, there was, that the FBI was aware at that stage that she was being held in a camp at Ionisa um, and that she had formerly been in the Irish Army. And it was simply a belief that they had, that she may have been involved in in the Katiba. There's Mm -hmm. no evidence about Mm -hmm. that. And it's not not the state's case. The state's case is that she uh, answered the call to join and joined a terrorist organization by answering that call mm-hmm. from Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of ISIS. And that is, I think, quite well accepted that he was. And that this money identified these payments, this 800 euro, etc., was f- to fund terrorism. That she, The state's case is that she knew that was to go into the the, te- the funds of ISIS, basically, yeah, as I suppose opposed that to for a in- laptop. Yeah, that goes yeah. into the coffers. As she said, it was just for his personal use and that's all she ever intended it for, yeah. So in Raqqa, she marries and has a child and 
Yeah, so a lot happened to her when she crossed the border into Syria, actually, and 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 this is why I suppose this there's a lot. This trial encompasses an awful lot. But when she first arrived there, she said um, she was taken over by some man. She didn't know who this person was. She said this person then rifled through her bags and took seven thousand euro that she had stashed in there that she was hoping she was thinking she would use if she ever decided she needed to leave. But he took that away from her, and that was that was gone. Um, she then found herself in a madafa. Now, a madafa is apparently um, a house for women who are not married, for unmarried women. And But she described it as a prison for women. She said there were about 50 to 60 women living in one house. And uh, said they weren't allowed to go out. Uh, it was very difficult to get food, very difficult to do anything. Um, and she just really wanted to get out of there. And she said that she was in contact now at this point with John Georgeless, uh, who was living in Raqqa at that time. And I, But it took him about five months to get her out of that metaphor. So she, as she describes it, she was essentially in this women's prison for five months. And then she got out and she was living in Raqqa with John Georgeless and his family uh, on the outskirts of Raqqa. And she says in that area, she never saw anything. She never saw anything untoward. She didn't see bombs falling. She says that she never saw anyone being executed. She didn't see anyone being tortured. She didn't see any of these uh, atrocities that ISIS carried out in Raqqa at that time. It's well, pretty well documented that they there was a particular square in Raqqa where they would take people to execute them publicly. But she says she, she didn't see any of that stuff. After a time, uh, she was encouraged to get married. So she married. she did get married. And she said that her husband who could be quite a violent man, according to her. He beat her up. She, she described six occasions when he quite badly beat her up. But she said that this man also protected her from what was going on outside. She said that she kept, he kept her in the house, wouldn't let her go outside, wouldn't let her read magazines, wouldn't let her look at videos online. So she didn't know what was going on around the place. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she got pregnant a couple of times to this man over that period. And she kind of lived like that really on into... Uh, 20 through 2016 into 2017 and it was then that the bombs started falling in Raqqa and things changed mm. and of course it's it's quite well documented that it was around that time that Raqqa fell and Raqqa had been the capital of the Islamic State and when Raqqa fell that was ISIS were forced into retreat at that point and she said it was that point that she started moving to various different villages and towns and places and um, she ended up in Baguz um, which was one of the final places to be taken down um, so she kind of went with ISIS then. Well, fled the, with them. Well, she the way that she describes it is that um, she just found herself going from pillar to post. Essentially, she was just uh, she she was you know a month here, a few months there. She ended up in this house. She was just looking for refuge. She also said that at that point. She wanted to leave. She wanted to get out of there. As soon as Raqqa fell, essentially, she said she wanted to leave, but she had no way out. She said, her, first of all, her husband wouldn't let her leave. She didn't have any money, so she couldn't pay her own way out. She said some people may have done that, but you needed thousands of euros to get as far as Turkey. And she didn't have that kind of money. Um, she said that if she had tried to escape on her own, she would have been caught. There was potential that you'd end up being tortured or raped or killed or all three. Um and even if you did manage to get away, there's a good chance that you'd be picked up by the Syrian forces and who knows what might happen to you then. So she felt that trapped. She felt that there was no way out. And she has repeatedly described it as a prison and a trap and so on, the whole, the whole experience. Now, the, the state's case is, and this was outlined by Sean Galland, senior counsel for the prosecution, when he was opening the case. Their allegation is that she wasn't fleeing from ISIS or fleeing from any, anything. She was f- with ISIS uh, as they retreated from Raqqa to Baguz uh, via Mayadeen and various other cities along the way, mm. they are alleging that she, her movements mirrored the movements of the ISIS front line, essentially, as it made its way to Baguz. Baguz was the final stronghold that they held, and then that, that was eventually overtaken by mm. combined forces. So she ended up essentially in a refugee camp called Ayan Isa camp, and... Um, Evidence has been heard, I think, that she did eventually make contact with her family from there. She got a, got her hands on a phone and got in touch with the, the father. And Yeah, she uh, she definitely described... She, she, she left three voice messages on her father's phone and she sent some text messages to uh, her sister, uh, Laura Smith. Um, the text messages seemed to indicate that she was in a very d- dangerous situation. 
according to a guard, uh, James Kilgannon, who who read the text messages at the time and copied them. He said that they indicated that she was in, in danger, that her husband had most likely been killed in the war, uh, mm. which he, he had at that point, it would seem. Um, and, uh, you know, she I suppose she was looking for a way out. The, uh, the voice messages then that she left on her father's phone indicated that it was very difficult for her to get hold of a phone, that she could get in big trouble, as she described it, for having a phone, that she would even be sent to a bigger prison if they... If they knew that she was speaking to family she said that the only reason anyone was ever allowed to use a phone was basically to ask for money and who was they that she was talking about at this point is this still ISIS like they're all held together and there's a well, sort of a command structure still within the refugee camp or is this it would appear there's something like that there's a, she called them the military who run this camp that's okay. how she referred to them and um, yeah we have like the court has heard references to that um, from the FBI about that there is kind of a command structure there um, within the camps and this can be quite brutal in those camps as well they, they talked about um, <clears throat> you know people being tortured and brutalised if they break the rules within those camps and that's coming from the, this kind of quasi-military yeah. that's running the camps. And who, how many is in the camp? The first camp she was in was a place called Al Hall, and it's been stated, at least by her defence council, that there were 60,000 in that camp. Ionisa, I think, might have been a, a similar-sized camp. But Al Hall was mm. considered to be the worst conditions. Ionisa was, the conditions were a little bit better there, where she where she ended up. But Al Hall appears to have been really appalling. But they're living under tarpaulin and with the kids, and it's kind of like, you know, I've been in places before where there's refugee camps set up and it is... Survival of the fittest. It's like yeah, and I mean you're talking dangerous, surrounded by barbed wire, locked gates, all yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, you're not free. You're not free to come and go as you please, and visitors are not really allowed. So yeah, the, the and the law. caliphate is over. The dream of that, you know, Islamic state is over, and clearly, yeah, there's and some criminals in that. There's a lot of criminals in that within that camp. There are people in that camp, undoubtedly, who have done absolutely terrible things. Yeah. Yes. No doubt about it. Mm, um, the things she says she never saw, the beheadings and the yeah. terrible tortures. And there, there was one thing just that she did see, um, uh, and this emerged again during her Gerda interviews, um, that when she was in Raqqa, so this is going back to kind of 2016, when things weren't too bad at that stage, she says that she was kind of um, content to to live there because she was living among Muslims and she wasn't seeing anything, you know, there were no bombs falling, anything like that. But she said that there was one day she was in a taxi, they were in Raqqa in the city itself, and they were coming up to a roundabout. And she said that her husband told her to close her eyes because there's a man hanging at the roundabout with his eyes taken out. But she did, she did actually see it and she said it was a man on a cross with his eyes gouged out. Crucified. Crucified. Um, she didn't know, she said she didn't know what his crime was, but she had heard that he might have been a spy. But she didn't know any more than that. She said that was the only thing that she saw while she was there, the only, what you might call, atrocity. Mm. That she, she, well, she didn't witness it actually happening, but she saw the aftermath mm. of it. And, uh, you know, she's repeatedly asked in those Garda interviews, is it possible that you didn't see everything else that was going on in Raqqa? They, yeah, the, the guards said to her that they didn't believe her. Yeah, they, 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 they find it they, just they too found hard it difficult to, to believe. believe. But she was adamant that um, she, she, she had not seen any of these things. She was living on the outskirts of Raqqa. Yeah, she was locked in. away as such by the husband. And, uh, mm. you know, I think she kind of made some claim along the during the, her statements that you know maybe he kind of did her a favor sort of thing you know the way yeah. he the way he kind of held her in and protected her from that as such she's yeah he that's very much uh, what she was saying was that mm. he tried to allow her to live as normal a life as possible in the circumstances mm. so he was killed and georgilis was also killed during the uh, the takedown Presumed dead, yes. Presumed I think dead. there was a bombing. Uh, it may have even been a drone, uh, a targeted drone strike. But right. yes, uh, I think he is presumed dead. Yeah, I don't think his body was ever found. But so, I mean, what a fascinating story so far. I mean, I know it's a court case. We can't really describe it as a story, but it is that as well. It's a well, amazing. It's, I mean, if you closed your eyes, you could just see a kind of an episode of Homelands. Well, it's been very wide ranging. You know, mm. normally in court cases in Dublin, you don't have people talking about their experiences in Syria and in refugee camps in Syria. Mm. Um, you don't have uh, FBI agents coming to give evidence, um, yeah. counterterrorism, international FBI agents. Um, 
you you know you don't typically get a witness like Tanya Joya who came in and talk talked about radicalization in the UK and yeah. you know traveling to the Middle East, Middle East to participate in a caliphate and things mm. like that and of course she talked about her process of deradicalization which was also very interesting you know she was quoting Thomas Paine um, who said, you know, if there is a, a a cruel God makes a cruel man. And she said there were various things like that that kind of rang true for her, that expressed things that she had been feeling for a number of years. Mm. And it was through a gradual process that uh, of hearing these things that challenged the um, challenged what she had been taught and what she had been told to believe that gradually brought her out of that kind of radicalization. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, you don't, <clears throat> these are issues and ideas that don't, typically get ventilated in Irish court. No, definitely not. They seem so far away. And, um, you know, so much so much has come out already. Presumably there's an awful lot more to come. Um, what is, what hangs in the balance now for Lisa Smith? What is she facing? Well, obviously she denies all the charges against her and she's um, contesting the two charges against her. Um, uh, it will be up to the Special Criminal Court to decide and whether or not she is guilty. This isn't a jury trial, mm. um, or at least the jury is essentially the three judges who are sitting uh, in the trial. If they were to find her guilty, she would be facing um, potential prison time. She does have a young daughter. Um, she uh, has, I suppose, according to herself, spent four years in Syria in a prison mm. um, that she travelled to. Um, she has described some appalling conditions that she witnessed there and, 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 and you know, suffered through herself. And um, she has said on a number of occasions during her guard interviews that she just wants to <clears throat> get back to her life. She wants to be allowed to pray, to be with her daughter, to do those things that are important to her and to be left alone, essentially. She has also said as well that um, <clears throat> she no longer believes that she had a religious obligation to travel to the caliphate. So she says that if another caliphate were announced tomorrow, and even if it were a legitimate caliphate, she wouldn't go back. She would never go back. She said that she served her time and she's done with it. But yeah, she served, the, 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 the trial is probably going to last another maybe three to four weeks, something like that. It's hard to know how long the judges will take before delivering their verdict. Um, but all of that is further down the line. Yeah. And how many weeks has it been on so far? It has been on, well, there was a little bit of a delay at the start because there was an application to have the charges dismissed, which delayed it by about a week. So I think we've been about three weeks of the actual trial so far. It was originally slated for 12 weeks, but the it has been said now on a number of occasions by the barristers involved that they're going to finish well within that time frame. So that remains to be seen. And she's presumably on free legal aid? Oh, yes, yes. As yeah. most, as most um, people who come before the courts here are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, whatever may come of it, it is certainly the first time this has played out, I think, in this country. And I suppose the idea of somebody going from uh, Ireland and, and getting, you know, drawn into something like that on the Internet. It's very real in other countries, maybe. Um, but certainly we don't see so much of it here. So at the very least, it's educational for everybody <laughs> so far. We call it that. Um, so we might come back to it over the next few weeks if you'd... Give us some more of your time and see where it's going. Absolutely, that would be great. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Owen Reynolds. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.